everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime suspense and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. But first, let me put in a good word for Blueberry Podcasting. I'm a Blueberry affiliate, but that's not the only reason I'm telling you this. I've been using Blueberry Podcasting as my hosting service for my podcast for years, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. They give great customer service, you're in complete control of your own podcast, you can run it from your own website, and it just takes a lot of the work out of podcasting for me. I find for that reason that it's a company that I can get behind 100% and say, you should try this. Try Blueberry. It doesn't require a long-term contract, and it's just a great company, period. And it also has free technical support by email, video, and phone. So you can get a human being there. Isn't that nice? Hi, everyone. Our guest this week is a comic book writer and editor who's best known as the co-creator of Deadpool, a movie I have yet to see, by the way. Um, but I've heard Brace a lot yourself. about <laughs> <laughs> So I've heard. Um, he is also the author of some wickedly funny mysteries, uh, if the first one is anything to judge by, including the Edgar Award-nominated first novel, Suburban Dicks. I'm pleased to have with me today, how do you pronounce it? Is it Fabian Nicieza? Oh, that was almost perfect, Debbie. Congratulations. <laughs> you, you fall under the 0.01% of Americans who can pronounce it properly. Um, it, it, the way I say it is in Spanish, it's Fabian Nicieza. In English, it's Fabian Nicieza. And often in American, it's Fabian Nicunza. So I get stuck. <laughs> But Fabian you did you did Nicieza. perfectly. Nicieza. Nicieza. But I like really the uh, Espanol pronunciation. It, well, it, I'm from Argentina originally, and, and it's si, a Spanish si. name from Spain. Yeah, so my grandparents <laughs> emigrated from northern Spain to Argentina in the uh, early 1900s. Well, Fabian Nicieza, welcome to the show, and I'm glad Thank to have you, you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Um uh, when I started reading that first book, um, just based on the look inside feature, it didn't take long for me to start laughing out loud, literally. All I can say is, God, what a first chapter. You really <laughs> know how to pull a person into a story. I appreciate that. I uh, I had about 20 years to make sure that I had it right, because that's how long it took me to write the book. Uh, oh from my, my original. I mean, I had the original idea for the book. Uh, based on things that were happening in my real life, and I just extrapolated it into fiction, um, it really extrapolated it uh, as an end result. But the, the, that opening chapter, quite honestly, was something that I'd already conceived of in 1995. Um, 
that I, I, I had the books beginning, middle and end and characters really well thought out back then. Um, I, I just either never wrote it because I had other paying work I had to do um, or I was never confident with my own prose. So I, I had um, I created excuses for myself why I didn't think it was good enough and I should just focus on this paying work I have to do right now. Um, and that's also understandable because, you know, professional writers have to have to earn a living and it's not always easy. So you got to pay the mortgage and you got to, you know, pay the kids college tuition and all that. Um, That's right. But by 2017, I, I felt that uh, it, it was almost like a little bit of a tug. If I don't do this now, I may never do it. Um, and, and, um, and so I started in late 2017 and, and um, almost hunt and pecked a little bit of my way through because it never was my primary focus. It couldn't be because I had, you know, I had work to do, assignments to do. So it took me till early uh, 2019 to finish it uh, because it wasn't something I, I focused all day long on every day of the week uh, as far as my writing goes. Um, and I, 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 when I finished the manuscript, I, I had, I'd had a few people reading things along the way and they kept being encouraging, which both confused me because I wasn't sure if they were just saying nice things to me, um, but also excited me because it made me think, wait a minute, this might be readable, this might be okay, my prose may not be bad because I finally, um, I finally wrote in my own voice rather than trying to write in another writer's voice or write to genre even, write to what my expectations are of what uh, a genre is or what an audience of that genre may want. I. I maybe it was good that it took me so long to write it because at the age I was at with the experience I had I kind of just said the hell with it let's just go um, let's just write what how I want to write it and that's what I did I think when you reach a certain age you do realize hey I gotta do it now or I may never do it <laughs> yeah definitely um because it's it becomes much easier to create excuses not to when you when you don't when you're getting older and you don't have as many financial responsibilities if you're lucky which I am because you know the mortgage was paid off and the kids were finishing the second kid was finishing college so so that horrific tuition cost was going to be gone and and I was like all right so if my financial expectations kind of are are getting reduced a little bit now what what's my excuse going to be you know I, I better do it um because i i won't start it at 70 probably you know um yep, and, yep. and and i turned 60 the year it came out which was kind of cool it, it was kind of nice that 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 was the year that was because it was also a year where an animated cartoon series for four and four to six year old kids that i developed a couple of years earlier also came out. So the, within a couple of months of the book coming out. So I I'm, I'm, I wrote something that was aimed at, at four-year-olds and I wrote something that was aimed at 44-year-olds, you know, at the same exact time. Fantastic. That's wonderful. Um, what inspired you to create this particular protagonist and write this particular book? in this particular um, the, way <laughs> the, the, well the particular way was just my own sad twisted brain um tell the, me your mom didn't work for the fbi <laughs> no she did not no um the 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 genesis of the book came first then the characters came second and the genesis of the book like i said it was based in real life circumstances um we had a gun club on the other side of a pond uh, behind my house uh, that we had moved into in 1993. And we tried to get them to stop outdoor shooting because they had the propensity to once in a while feel like lobbing bullets in our general direction. And, and um, 
and, and we lost that town council battle five to four to ban outdoor shooting. We were we, we didn't want to stop them from indoor shooting. The gun club had been there for 50 years, but it was like six residents of the town I lived in, West Windsor, and the rest of the members of the club were from other towns. Uh, and it just felt ludicrous that this new neighborhood was built on the other side of the pond that was in the same general direction as their pistol berms were. Um, so when we lost 5-4, um, my first inclination as a writer is I need to come up with a story that gets revenge on them, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what it was. I, I thought, what if we found out something that makes the gun club look so bad that it forces them to shut down? And I thought, what if members of the gun club killed someone years ago and, and the body starts turning up now? Uh, that would really put them in, 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 in trouble, right? And, and as you can tell, if you read the book, it really did, ex it, it used parts of that as in theory, but it really extrapolated itself into something different. And that was born of the time uh, that, that, that it took me to write. Um, and, and all of the all of the characters really are kind of amalgams and mishmashes of of um, different people and personality traits that were in my life uh, around that time. Friends, so many of whom are still friends to this day. We all were of the same age. We all around the same time period. You start getting married. You you get your your first condo, your first townhouse, your first house. Then you start having your first kids. And all of us were around that same, you know, early 30s age where we all were starting to have our first kids and we'd all gotten our first homes. So the character of Andrea came born of the idea of what if what if this woman who should have been this can't be this now because she is, you know, pregnant with her fifth kid. Uh, I think that was just exaggeratedly burdensome on purpose for the sake of, of parody and heightened drama. Um, and Kenny and, and Kenny was really a riff on myself at that time. I, I had the idea when I was around 34 and I'd already accomplished so much of what I wanted to accomplish when I was a kid, writing comics. And, and, and at that point, selling tremendous amounts of comics at a time when comics were selling a lot and writing the number one title for Marvel for, for a few years, uh, the X-Men. And, and I thought to myself, what's next? What do I do next? What if this is the biggest, what if this is it? What if this is the most I'm going to get to do or the biggest thing I'm going to get to do? So that inherent creative insecurity that, and I know it's, it's play me a small violin. It's cry me a river because I, I, you know, I was selling a million comics a month, writing multiple titles for Marvel comics. Um, that, that it's not a sad tale of woe by any means, but you, you do, you do ask yourself, what do I do next? What, what's next? So I thought of Kenny as a character. What if he reached the peak? Uh, when he was in college, what if what if the fact that he's the youngest person to ever get a Pulitzer Prize in journalism because he 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 dug the story up that ended up destroying a governor's administration? What if ten years later he's a complete screw up? You know, he just he, he just he peed away all of that opportunity that he had, right? Um, wow. and, and I thought that made for interesting protagonists because they're not perfect characters by any means. I don't want them to be. They, they, they're, they're intelligent, but they say and do very stupid things, you know, that <laughs> they have skill, but they're also incredibly unskilled in other ways and, and, and really socially awkward. Um, so so I, ju I just thought that they made for um, 
interesting characters that were in an interesting time in their life. Um, uh, of course, if you had told me that I'd be writing about 29-year-olds and 33-year-olds when I was 59, <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to conceive that. So the writing of the actual book was interesting because I'm, I'm writing younger characters through the prism of the experiences I've already had. You know, I've already had the kids. I've already had the mortgages. I've already had the commute into Manhattan, all of that stuff. So I'm writing almost uh, my omniscient narrator has that snark to it because it knows better than the characters what their own lives are like because it's already lived those lives you know um which i i hope i hope would bring an interesting tone to the whole thing well i i think that's the way most of us go about it you know it's kind of all of it kind of comes from the content of our lives we take that content and kind of shape it and exaggerate it and people with uh, characters that we've run across. Um, do you have a plan as far as like a series based on this book? Well. And the one that you just came out with? You could always have a plan, but it depends on whether the publisher <laughs> wants to, to do that plan. Do you um, think that's gonna I was, happen? I have no idea to tell you the truth, honestly. Uh, I tend to be you want pretty it to bluntly, happen? I, I tend to be bluntly honest in my interviews. Uh, it was a two book contract, which I was very pleased about because there were multiple publishers interested in the first manuscript and as a way to try to sweeten that deal during the course of the publishers um, um, bidding on it, it it turned into a two book contract um, so I knew all along that I was going to get a chance to tell the sequel um, would I like to tell more stories with Andy and Kenny yes I absolutely would uh, I know that I have over the course of 20 years I've developed six to eight um, uh, different books that I would want them to be in. I, I don't think I'd want to write them forever, but I, I come from comic books where you write sequential monthly books and often you write them for years. So you could write 50 issues, 75 issues, 100 issues of a comic book, and that's the equivalent of, you know, 10 years of your life, right? So I, my mindset is such that I can extrapolate the lives of the characters and their children all the way through high school into college for the kids. Um, I, I know I know where I would like to see them go. If you read the second book, there's a major life change happening for, for one of the characters um, and, and a major life lesson for another character. Um, and that's all in order to be prepared to write a third book if I get that chance. Um, and I hope I do get the chance. I hope Putnam wants to do more. And if, if quite frankly, if not Putnam, maybe somebody else. Um, I, I think that the characters have resonated with, with a, a, an audience already. And, and I'd like the opportunity to continue providing stories for that audience. It seems to me that the, the Jersey suburbs of New York provide a really great um, breeding ground for stories. I mean, I've seen it in like Jenna Ivanovich's books. I've seen it in Clerks. I've seen it in all sorts of media. Um, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I think um, I, I don't, I have a lot to compare it to because I've been fortunate enough to visit a lot of this country and a lot of cities in this country um, and, and other countries as well. But I've been in 45 states uh, in, in this country and I've seen a lot of it. And, and there is there is a certain uniqueness to, to the tri-state area, and certainly the region I'm in, which is really kind of trapped between Philadelphia and New York City. Um, and, and they're very different cities in a lot of ways. Um, I'm a New York 
city guy. That, that's where we emigrated to. Um, when we immigrated here, we lived in Queens and New York for a few years before moving out to Jersey. But I've been in New Jersey since 1968. So I've been here for the vast majority of my life. And, um, and I, I, I find it a very interesting place because it's an incredibly brash, bold, uh, quick and smart, but also incredibly insecure and incredibly, <laughs> incredibly tentative and, and incredibly defensive. Um, and, and I think that that makes for an interesting conflict. Um, it, it's not all one or the other. The two things actually don't actually work together. The two things seem to butt into each other. And, and that creates interesting people and interesting conversation. Um, the suburbs where I live is, is a combination of people who have to commute into Manhattan through the train station. I, I wrote so much about it because it's a prevalent part of my life for years because I worked full time in Manhattan for years and, and then I continued to go into the city a couple times a week uh, working on different things um, but that it's an ingrained part of my life. Um, I, I, the current house I live in is even close enough to the train station where you can hear the whistle every time a train comes comes down, you know. Um, and, and I find that 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 um, there's a certain nobility to that exhaustion, you know. There's a certain there, there, there's a, a certain strength in in enduring that grind, um, and it is a grind, you know. Non-pandemic years, you know, taken into account, like like. Um, the, the the I described it in the book as train face and 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 to me I coined that phrase 20 years ago uh, when I saw someone at the train station I hadn't seen for like five years because I stopped going in full time into the city and he hadn't stopped going in full time and just in five years he looked 10 years older than me I was like wow <laughs> time works very differently when you're stuck on New Jersey transit um, um, so so I just find New Jersey to be um, it's a very interesting place, and when when you have to endure that kind of daily grind, uh, there's there's a certain nobility to it. Um, it's a sad nobility, but it can also be a very funny one as well. Uh, and and ha and the people who have to do that on a daily basis, they they really they're not they don't make up the totality of the population where I live, but they infuse a big part of it. Um, because the train station here is the second largest in the state and it feeds a lot of people into Manhattan. There's plenty of other people that have to commute down to Philly. They got car face, but <laughs> the people who take <laughs> New Jersey transit, they got train face. And, and I think that there's a sense, there should be a sense of hope and joy when you're looking at it, but you shouldn't sugarcoat it. There should also be a, a sense of frustration and exhaustion that, that is part and parcel of our daily lives, especially in the suburbs, more so than in city living, which tends to be uh, both both incredibly crowded and incredibly lonely at the same time. You know, that, yeah. that's city living, you know? Yeah. Um, and I know city living, I know plenty of people who still live in the city, you know, contemporaries and peers of mine since I was in my 20s who still live in the city. And absolutely, there is a sense of people everywhere and you are alone anywhere, you know? Um, yes. and, and, and that's an interesting thing to write about too, which I think I tried to get into a little bit in the second book. Um, there's a group of characters that Kenny's now a part of in the second book, The Self-Made Widow, that, that are, are cityites. And there is a certain community among them, but each of them have their own certain level of loneliness as well. Um, mm -hmm. So I tried in the second book. I tried to offset the suburban setting with a little bit of the city. 
uh, and I wanted to bring a little bit of my experiences and, and, and my thinking about, about city life um, and city, uh, city urban people um, it, to, to the book as well, and, and hopefully put the same kind of lens on it that, that I did uh, to West Windsor, Plainsboro, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. I get you about the commute. Boy, I used to do that into D.C. No more. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, let's see. What authors do you like to read? What inspires you? Um, you know, I got to be honest. I didn't read prose fiction for many years. Uh, I think subconsciously it's because I wasn't writing it and I really wanted to be. So, you know, but ironically enough, once I sold the manuscript, I started reading like crazy again. <laughs> um, I, I, I've read a lot of stuff. I read the start a series book. I tend to keep going with the series book. So I read uh, all the Michael Connolly Bosch books and, and most of the Lincoln Lawyer so far. Uh, I read Louise Penny's uh, books, um, which my wife is an, an enormous fan of, and I'm a little less of a fan of them, but I still like them and I read them. So I've read three of her, her books. Um, uh, I, I've read Janet Ivanovich. I've read Sue Grafton because I really like their professionalism and their skill and their ability to craft those those quick, uh, incredibly um, entertaining and easy to access um, stories that they do. Um, and it's a, it's a real skill to be able to do that. And they do. Um, I've read several books, including the latest one by a, a friend of mine, Alex Segura, who just wrote a book called Secret Identity, which is out. Uh, which is a murder mystery set in the comic book industry of the 1970s, and it's really fun. Um, and I read it as a comic book guy, and, and I'm trying to say, well, who's this character based on, and who's that character based on? Um, uh, because we both know the real people involved. Um, and I've also really gotten uh, into Sean Cosby as well. I say Cosby's uh, Razor Tears and, uh, and Blacktop Wasteland. Uh, I, I, he's won from several awards for his first few novels and he's an excellent writer. Yeah. Yes, yes he is. Um, let's see, what was it like adjusting from writing comics to writing a book? Did it help you in any way? Having oh, tremendously. Comics. Yeah. I think ultimately it helped me a lot. Um, it helped me with my sense of pacing, uh, my, my sense of structure, understanding that each chapter has to be, it's a kind of a self-contained thought unit. Uh, and, and within that, within that, you have to tell your own mini story within a, a chapter, no different than a single issue of a comic book that is part of a continued run like Spider-Man or, or X-Men. Um, it taught me to try my best to end each chapter with a little bit of a kick uh, that makes you want to go, I'm going to read one more chapter tonight before I close the book. Um, and, and I think Suburban Dix did that pretty well. I was happy when I read the book, like myself, as a book reading experience in bed. Um, I, I liked the fact that there was a few times I actually said to myself, oh, I'll read one more chapter. Um, and I knew what the story was because I wrote it. Um, and and, and uh, I've, I feel, although it's up to other people to tell me that, that, whether they agree with me, whether I'm an idiot or not, that it really helped me with my dialogue. Um, I, 
I, I, I'm a little coy about the fact that I'm comfortable handling dialogue of different people and different characters. Uh, and uh, I've been coy about it because it was one of the first and best compliments I got from a contemporary of mine 30 years ago. He said that if you, if you, if someone's reading your comics out loud, like a team book of characters, like the Avengers, let's say, you, you can close your eyes and if someone reads the dialogue out loud, you know who each character is. And that was a tremendous compliment I got from a really, a, a, you know, a mentor and a good friend of mine who said that early on in my career. So I try not to waste dialogue um, and I try to make it, I try to make everything they say resonate, um, especially in a book because it's not a screenplay. It's not constant dialogue, you know, so it's got a narrative voice and a narrative point of view sometimes, which may be in conflict to what the characters are saying because the characters might have their own perception of something that isn't necessarily the reality that the narrator is trying to present to you. Um, which is why I don't think I want to write first person narration books because I prefer, I prefer that snarky, omniscient narrator to distinct understanding and awareness of the story that's being told because my characters can be sometimes a little uh, self-delusional, shall we say, um, <laughs> and, and may not always be on the right path. Uh, like, like, like in the second book, the Andrea Stern, the, the, the main character of the book is investigating a murder that may not be a murder. And, and I, I wanted that, I wanted other characters to question whether she's really investigating a murder or whether she's inventing a murder for the sake of having something to do uh, because mm -hmm. she needs to do it. Um, and, and even to the point where I, I, the character has to question herself a couple of times, which is not her nature to question herself. She's pretty, she's pretty certain she's always right all the time. So, um, you know, I, I, I did that on purpose because I wanted in the second book for Andrea's infallibility as a sleuth to be called into question. Mm -hmm. That's great. Characters like that are great when they're self-delusional. I mean, you can play with them so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she has a lot of rationalizations to her and she's made a lot of mistakes in her life. Um, one of the main criticisms the first book received from readers who were a little on the fence about it, which I will add was an incredible minority of the readers. Um, but but the, ones, the ones who were on the fence about it, the one of their main problems with her is why, why is she pregnant? for a fifth time if she hates her kids why is she having a fifth kid and i'm like you know that's a little black and white and not life isn't that black and white she, she doesn't hate her kids at all she hates her life there's a very different there's a different reality to that you know and and she's she, so as a result uh, i i like a character who who knows enough about herself to know that she's not living the life she should be but it often lacks the courage, lacks the ability, uh, lacks, lacks the, um, the, the fortitude even to make the choices that would have to be made in order to live the life that she knows she should be living. The first book is her rediscovering the life she should be living because it's a rediscovery of her talents and abilities as a detective, a sleuth, right? And in the second book, it's about moving past the impediments that she, in many ways she has put in front of herself to do what needs to be done. Um, and by the end of the second book, she's, she's closer to being who she should be. And, and if there's a third book, knock on wood, um, that, that um, she will be at a different place again in the third book, the way she is in the second book. Well, all I can say is 
Um, I hope you have a third book because that sounds like a powerful story. Uh, what advice would you give to anyone who's interested in a career as a writer, comics uh, or otherwise? Make sure you have a career first, <laughs> then <laughs> then try to be get a career as a writer. Um, a very small percentage of people who who either claim or want to be professional writers actually earn enough income to to be to be professional writers. So it's a really difficult thing to do. It doesn't mean that the people who do it are necessarily better or the best by any means at all. It, it just means that in many cases, they, they, they got themselves into a position which gave them the opportunity to write. And then they capitalize on that opportunity by producing work that either the people buying the material, editors, publishers uh, wanted, and the people reading the material and audience uh, was interested in. So I'm the latter. I got lucky in that I got a job at Marvel Comics and I was on staff there and I started selling my stories while I was on staff. But before I got that job, I was writing. I was writing all the time. Uh, my, my biggest piece of advice is to always be writing. It's something, anything, everything, all the time. Um, set yourself up for different challenges. Write a poem write a song lyric. It doesn't matter if you're not a poet. It doesn't matter if you're not a lyricist. It's a different kind of writing, which requires a different kind of tool set. And it's good to master different tool sets. Um, and, and, and I have written a wide variety of material across multiple platforms over 35 years. I'm predominantly known as a comic book writer, but I've done advertising writing, I've done academic writing, I've done, I've done um, narrative development for video games and feature films, uh, I, I've done, and, and, and franchise bibles for toy properties and, and movies and video game companies. Uh, I've been a chief creative officer of a virtual world stand, uh, startup company that was kind of like Plug Club Penguin for kids. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I, I developed an animated series um, for Stan Lee and a company called uh, Genius Brand in, in California, and it, 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 went, uh, it went live on a streaming platform last year with Arnold Schwarzenegger as the voice of the main character, and I'm not an animation writer per se, and I'm certainly not someone that well-versed in writing for four to six-year-olds, but I was able to develop the entire story world that the animated series is set in. Um, so, so because I had such a diversity of experience and interests, I want to try new things and different things. I think it makes me a much better writer. And, and anytime I focus back on whatever platform I'm working on, I, I feel any other experience helps me on that platform, just like other experiences helped me to write a prose novel for the first time when I was 59 years old. <laughs> um, so it's part of the to write, always write. Uh, the second step is find the means to get eyeballs on your material. The only way that you can know if it's good or if it entertains people or if it moves people or if it angers people, whatever your goal is as a writer, you need to have people read it and respond to it. And you need to have a thick skin to that response because, boy, you, 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 if you don't have a thick skin to, to audience's response, you're going to crumple and you're going to just not be able to do it. Um, and, and you have to be able to take Take excessive feedback is what it amounts to, especially nowadays in the age of the internet where, where it's instantaneous. You know, 
yes. I, I come from a world where in comics, uh, there used to be letters pages in every issue. So people actually had to make the effort to write a letter and mail it to the company. And, and you had to read through all those letters and you go, you have to understand that there's gonna be critical ones in there. Um, but at least back then they took the effort to write and paid the money for a stamp. Nowadays, mm -hmm. yelling is easy. You could just yell on the internet in seconds. <laughs> right. Or put up a terrible review on Amazon, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, um, I, I'm running out of time here. So I just want to say, um, is there anything else you want to say before we go? <laughs> I, I, what I want to say is I hope that your audience gives Suburban Dicks a try. And I hope that they give the new book coming out in just a couple of weeks, The Self-Made Widow a try. Uh, they're each independent mysteries uh, featuring continuing characters. You don't need to read the first one to read the second one, although it probably helps. Uh, but but I tried very hard to make the second book uh, self-contained and the information you need to know about the characters and the previous experiences uh, are, are in the book. Uh, and, and I hope readers give it a try because uh, the readers who have read them have been pretty positive about them, and it's, it's very rewarding and validating to hear that. Um, so so uh, I'm enjoying it, and I hope I get to do more of it. Well, that's fantastic. And thank you so much for being here. My uh, pleasure. Bian or Fabian. <laughs> either one. <laughs> either one. Either one. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Debbie. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And for all of you out there listening, I just would like to remind you that we have a bonus episodes, chapters from one of my novels in audio and text form and other perks for supporters on Patreon. So check out the Patreon page and click follow to get a sense of what's on there. Also, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you would. I hope you enjoy the show and that you will leave a review. And on that note, I'll just say see you in a few. And uh, until then, happy reading. Mm -hmm.